Hi there, everybody. Ed asked me to chime in and let you know about me. My name is Dan, and I am weird. But I don't see weird as a bad thing. Weird just means people marching to the beat of a different drum, not fitting into that hole that society wants to shove you into. On my show, The Power of Weird, I'm talking to people like me. The weirder, the better. So when you're done listening to this great episode of the Dead America Podcast, come on over to thepowerofweird.com and start the descent into your weirdom. And remember, be the weird you want to see in the world. I'll see you next time on The Power of Weird. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. And welcome. Today we are talking with Andrew Seaton. Andrew has a book that he just wrote. I highly recommend the book, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple, How to See Through the Mist of the Mind to the Peace of the Here and Now. Awesome book. Andrew, welcome to the show. Could you take the time, introduce yourself, and let people know how you got where you are now in writing this book? Oh. Thanks, Ed. Uh, thanks for the invitation to uh, chat with you on your show. It's kind of interesting, actually. I've been thinking the last couple of days in anticipation of chatting with you about the title of your show, Dead America. And it kind of strikes me like uh, I've been concerned most of my adult life with what seemed like, you know, a relatively dead world. And so I can say a little bit about my background and how I came to write the book by making that that connection um since my late teens and leaving high school going to college uh i had a sense that there was something deeper to life than than was obvious and something deeper to me than i was able to kind of bring you know express in my life and i went to college to study school teaching i found the the program very uninspiring um, but I did read a little bit uh, outside of my uh, degree program, books I found in bookstores or the university bookshop and things like that. And I found some books that really did describe and reflect and really invite the reader to consider deeper aspects of life. One of those books, a couple of those books actually, were by uh, Eric Fromm. He talks about the same society. Uh, and he wrote another book called The Art of Loving. I found this really uh, inspiring stuff, and it, it really confirmed for me that I wasn't kind of dreaming, <laughs> that there, there, there is more if we just sort of dig a bit deeper. Um, 
uh, but actually uh, for several decades, <laughs> I'm really talking for four and a half decades, both in my personal life and in my working life, most of which was in the field of education. I had lots of other jobs at different times too, but most of it was in the field of education. In both those aspects of my life, I was doing this job of trying to dig deeper, you know, what's really real, what's really true, and and how do we access these kind of um, more precious aspects of of being a human being and of experiencing life that, that people from time to time refer to, but they're not in the common everyday experience and they're not in the common everyday conversation. So I was trying to, you know, I, I looked into so many different, um, uh, you know, personal growth um, programs and philosophies. Uh, and in my work, you know, I really dug deep into, eventually I started studying even deeper into the normal training to be a school teacher. And I looked at, well, what really is the nature of learning and what's the nature of the knowledge that we seem to value so much and rely so much upon? You know, what is really the nature of human intelligence? How does that operate? And I got caught up in so many traps along the way, Ed, you know, so many claims to, you know, this will help you, this will be fun, this will be satisfying. I, I, <laughs> you've, been, you've been there a bit, hey, yeah. Um, uh, of course, yes. But, well, and in a way, you know, this was kind of the beginning of my spiritual awakening, it could be said. <clears throat> um, I want to just divert momentarily to, to talk about this word spiritual as I use it, because I use it not to suggest anything whatever to do with beliefs. I use it to suggest a subtler aspect of life that most of us sense from time to time, maybe somewhat dimly, but there's a subtler aspect to us than our bodies and our minds. And there's a, there's a subtler aspect to the life that we experience than you know, just what we sense with our physical senses and, and what we think about with our conceptual mind. So this deeper aspect of awareness or presence or life, the essence of life, that's all I'm referring to in the, by using the word spiritual. And it's the essence of who we actually are, got nothing to do with the conceptual mind or beliefs about this or that. Anyway, so <laughs> what I, I was starting to say about how, in a way, along this long, long path of my life, the spiritual awakening, in a sense, has been happening because I just had, had this tendency to not be satisfied once I became aware of the limitations of a particular uh, practice or a particular way of looking at things or a particular program of personal growth or, or a particular theory about life and the universe and everything. When, once I sensed the limitations of it, I acknowledged the limitations of it and sometimes I just let it go completely, that particular path or that particular activity, and then continued on looking rather than settling for, well, at least this is satisfying me in certain ways, and I'll just I'll just accept that it's maybe not completely right. <laughs> if it wasn't completely right, I, I let it go, and I kept on looking, looking, looking. Uh, and in recent years, uh, things have finally fallen into place. I've managed to extricate myself <laughs> from so many traps along the way, and I've been able to see how it all comes together and not just to, to see, certainly not just to see with my eyes, but also not just to see with my conceptual understanding, but to, to see with my 
I suppose we could say my inner sight. I'm not talking about ESP either. I'm just saying I began to feel and experience the deeper level of life. And one of one of the words I could use, I suppose, to describe that is this sense of peace that's in the background that has previously been so much in the background as now is so much more in the foreground of my life, this peaceful presence that is the background of all that I experience. So this is how I came to write the book. And uh, I talk about in the <clears throat> preface of the book, uh, <clears throat> for a couple of years before I wrote it, I was sort of feeling that I'd like to write something like this. A, because I know that so many people are frustrated with their, their search to find, how do I find a, con a contentedness in my life? How do I find, you know, an undercurrent of peace? How do I get happy, you know? <laughs> and, and also because I had personally experienced, and I see so commonly people getting caught in traps, conceptual traps, often just traps laid by the mind to say, you know, this, all, this is where it's at, this is where it's at, this is where it's at. And I wanted to write a book to, to, to help to show people, don't fall for that crap. Don't, don't just settle in the comfort of that trap. It's a trap. It's not satisfying. It's not fulfilling. It's not reality. It's not who you truly are. And it's not how you can truly experience life. So I spent a couple of years feeling, you know, I'd like to write this book. I, I feel there's a book in there. I want to get it out. And I... But I got various messages, and I talk in the preface also about how I had a lot of dreams, you know, that was starting in 2018, a lot of dreams telling me about my own awakening and about how I was soon going to be helping a lot of other people with awakening. But uh, when, when I tried to start writing this book in 2018, I just didn't, it, it didn't feel really kind of right, but I, I, I had the desire there. And one day I actually started and I laid out some papers and put down a few ideas that could be different chapters but nothing would flow. And so I just said, oh, well, okay, then, you know, it's just obviously not the right time, you know. And then it was about a year later that I, again, had something that popped up that prompted me to want to write the book. And this time, even though I had a few doubts, maybe it's still not the right time, maybe I'm not ready, there were messages and dreams that said, no, write it now. And so I did start writing it, and I was just so surprised with how the content really came to me and flowed into the book. And so I'm telling that little part of the story just to emphasise for your listeners that this book wasn't written primarily out of my conceptual mind. If you like, it wasn't written by the personality of Andrew Seaton. It was written by the more fullness of me that was waking up in me, this more universal intelligence that's, that is the essence of all of us, the, the awareness or consciousness that that underlies our conscious mind and our bodies, this was flowing through me and expressing, giving me in, intuitive inspiration for the content of the book. I might stop there, Ed, and just see if you've got any questions you want to you throw in or comments. Andrew, uh, there's a lot going on in this book. It's full of insight, uh, thought, and it's very thought-provoking, that's for sure. So some of the interesting details you've already touched on a lot of it uh in the introduction you already outlined your take on the spiritually conscious i found that very unique and i i'd like to touch a little more on that uh using the term spiritually consciousness to refer to an awareness beyond the conceptual mind beyond 
thinking. Sometimes we find that in a dream state. Sometimes we can find that daydreaming. Do you daydream about just things of spiritual nature a lot? When when you think about writing a book, you have to come up with concept for sure. And a lot of this goes beyond what the mind actually tells you to think. That spiritual consciousness, it's very intriguing. And I find a lot of people miss that. Those dreams that you talk about, do, do you get the same feeling through these like daydreams where you're actually awake, but you're taken away to another dimension, time, or anything like that? For me, it's not uh, daydreaming in that sense that you describe. But, but what I do find a lot more in my life now, Ed, is that feelings will pop up about things that I should or perhaps shouldn't do. Um, and when I say should or shouldn't, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying this would be good and that would be bad in the usual way that the conceptual mind grabs hold of those concepts and, and really <laughs> tortures us with them. You know, No, I'm saying uh, often, more often than now I feel like bubbling up from within me is a feeling of go in this direction or don't, no, don't go in that direction. This is, how, this is what's more real over this way. So I would put it more in that sense <clears throat> that my life feels somehow more guided by an inner guidance system that's deeper than my conceptual mind. And, and thanks for emphasising this issue of the conceptual mind. Many, many people confuse spirituality or the spiritual dimension of life with uh, looking into concepts about spirituality or concepts about an, an inner life and so forth. But as you as you say in in the introduction, I point out to people this book's definitely not primarily about spiritual concepts. Many many people who are who spend their lives investigating and exploring and writing about and talking about and discussing spiritual concepts are quite unconscious spiritually speaking. But many people who mm-hmm. hardly ever think about you know uh, and they hear the word yoga or meditation or retreat. And they say, what are they? <laughs> but there, there are many people yeah. like that who are actually very, very, very spiritually awake. So being spiritually awake has nothing to do with the conceptual mind. And I want to give your listeners now just a, a, a little taste of something simple they can do, experience right this very moment to get a sense of what I'm talking about. And you'll remember, Ed, that I talk about this in the early part of Chapter 1. If your listeners think about when they were a little child, eight or ten years old, did they feel like they were them at that time? And most people are going to nod and say, well, yeah, sure, I did feel like I was me. And, you know, did you feel like you were you when you were 15, 16? Yeah, I did, yeah. What about when you were 20? Of course. When you were 30, 40, 50, did you feel like you were you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And even though, of course, you, you know, you, you were in very different circumstances maybe at those different stages, uh, your roles in life were very different. One time you're a grade school student and next time you may be a college student or you were working in a, in a store as a checkout person uh, 
or you were working as a carpenter or, a, you know, whatever job there might be. Uh, and your jobs have changed, your roles have changed. Yeah, they sure have. But all this while you felt like you were you, right? Well, yeah. So that means that, you know, shop assistant can't be who you are. Doctor is not who you are. Motor mechanic is not who you are. It's just something that you happen to be doing. And next year, if you happen to take a different job, feel like a change or you're made redundant and you're forced into a change, you're still you. Oh, yeah, I am. That's true. And your body's changed over all those years. Sure, yeah, in big ways it's changed, yeah. you know. And uh, some of the things that you believe about yourself and life, they're different from when you were 10, from when you were 20 to 30. Yeah, a lot of those beliefs have changed. So none of those things are who we are. And yet we tend to have this self-image that says this: these concepts of who I am are who I am. But no, they're not. That sense that you had all your life, yeah, I was me when I was 10. I was me. I felt like I was me when I was 20, when I was 30. That is you. That's this formless awareness that's been mostly in the background, the witness, the observer, the noticer of all of what you have been experiencing, the noticer of your physical sensations, your sensory input, the noticer of the thoughts that have, that have been coming again, the noticer of emotions that have come and gone, the noticer of roles and occupations that you've had. That's this inverted commas, spiritual aspect, formless awareness, formless consciousness. It is the essence of who we are. And you refer to that as the mist of the mind. Is that correct? No. Well, the mist of the mind is all the things that we get tricked into thinking are us, all the thoughts, all the ideas, all the perceptions. Most perceptions are very selective and sort of distorted, interpretive. Uh, all the, all our, our emotions, uh, all of our beliefs, this is all the mist of the mind. We think it's real. We think it's who we are. That's why I say it's the mist of the mind, because it's actually a distortion of what's real. The, the truth of who we are and the truth of life is this uh, formless, peace-filled presence or life, life energy or life, uh, life essence, the intelligence of, of yeah. life that's in, in the background. So um, let's touch on that idea then of seeing through the mist of the mind. And let's go to, to really the core of the, the main benefits that people will get out of exploring this awakening of the deeper truth of who they are. Uh, an interesting thing that I discovered along the way is that the things that seem to disappoint us or trouble us or make us feel like we're not satisfied or that we're frustrated in some way, either subtly or perhaps, you know, glaringly, obviously with our lives, the things that trouble us are not what we experience or even they're not what we don't experience that we wish we could. What troubles us is not what we're experiencing. It's, the, it's having a thought and believing a thought that says what I'm experiencing is bad or it's not what it should be or it's not good enough you know it's so it's it's not what we experience but what we think and believe about what we are experiencing and this is a huge um, 
breakthrough of discovery. Um, and I want to just let your listeners come back to what we were just saying a minute ago about who the essence of them is. They've always felt like they were them. And that's this observing awareness that's kind of been in the background. Now, it's not what I'm experiencing. There's a thought that's popping up that says what I'm experiencing isn't what I want or it's not what it should be or it's bad. That's a thought that's popped up. And they, your listener, is noticing that thought. They're not the thought that's causing, that's triggering the turbulent emotions maybe or the, or the general dissatisfaction. They're the awareness, the peace-filled awareness that's noticing the thought. So that in itself helps to dissolve the potency of the thought and the emotion that it's triggering. If when your listeners have a particular emotion pop up, a really helpful thing to do is to first of all acknowledge the emotion, of course, rather than just immediately trying to bury it. But say, no, I'm feeling a bit anxious or I'm feeling jealous or I'm feeling I'm feeling angry at the moment about something. And then look at, okay, yes, I'm having that feeling, but then shift from thinking I'm angry or I'm jealous or I'm anxious to saying to themselves, I'm the awareness noticing a feeling of anger or I'm the awareness noticing a feeling of frustration. And this brings a space between who you really are and the feeling or emotion that's been triggered by a thought. And I describe in the book, step by step, lots of examples, how people can do this very simple process. Once you've noticed that you're the one noticing the thought, noticing the emotion, you're not actually the emotion, you're, the, you're noticing the emotion, then they can begin to look at what's the thought that's triggered this emotion. So let's say it's anger. Yeah. And, and so then they realize, oh, I'm feeling angry because such and such a person said they would do something for me yesterday and they still haven't done it. That's, and that's bad. <laughs> so there's the thought that's triggering the anger. Uh, even not just that this person hasn't done what they said, but the thought that it's bad that they haven't done what they said they would do. And that's what's triggering my anger. And then people can ask themselves, oh, now, okay, do I know for sure that this thought that it's bad that such and such a person hasn't done yet what they said they would do? Do I know for sure that that's bad? Oh, well, no, there's no way I suppose that I can prove for certain that it's bad that they haven't done what they said they would do. Then they can ask the person, you can ask yourself, is it possible it could lead to something good? Um, well, yes, I suppose there are several ways in which it, it could actually lead to something good, the fact that they haven't done what they said they would do. Maybe it's going to prompt me to take some action that I otherwise wouldn't have bothered to do, and that's going to in some way benefit me. I'm going to learn to do something that I otherwise wouldn't have been bothered to learn to do. Or it might you know, have a more, better result because I've done it myself rather than having them do it. There's all sorts of possibilities that will pop into people's mind about how it could possibly lead to some good outcome. So then you begin to realise there's no way that I can know for certain that this thought that's popped up that triggered my troubling emotions, the thought that popped up, I can't know for sure that it's true. It could just as easily turn out to be false. Uh, and then so... 
what remains? This observing awareness that you truly are remains. You just are there, present. The, the thought has kind of crumbled into dust because you've seen that there's no way you can know it's true. The emotion that was triggered by the false thought dissolves once you realise, gee, there's no way that I can know that that thought, that that situation is bad is true. Then the emotion it falls into, into nothingness and you're left with peaceful presence. Yeah, yeah that, that kind of falls in, Andrew, with what you write on page 80 and on page 42. On page 80, it states, quote, everything bad that you ever believed about yourself is false. It was just the judging play of the conditioned mind, just a figment of your imagination, unquote. Earlier on page 42, it quotes, when you see through what the conditioned mind body thinks things mean, in particular, its judgments of good and bad, you awaken to your true nature as peace and oneness with the spiritual essence of all life. That's profound right there. And that's kind of what you just went over. A lot of people skip that. <laughs> well, Ed, you really have honed in on the central insight, which is so radically different from what we grow up in our culture to assume. Uh, we identify with our mind. We think our mind is who we are. We think the things that pop up into our mind are true. We're taught in, through school to think that you know what what our mind uh, constructs as an interpretation of the world. We're taught different ideas and and what they call is knowledge. We think it's knowledge which is truth. It's knowledge which is like a as, a, as it were a, a copy of reality, a mirror of reality. But what I discovered, uh, first of all, in my deep investigations into learning and the nature of human knowledge, is that it's it, it's not knowledge as truth. It's an interpretation of, of the uh, analytical conceptual mind. Uh, and even in practical fields, our knowledge is not a copy of reality. It's not truth. It may it often in particularly, as I say, in the practical fields, it may have some uh, provisional instrumental value. It may kind of be workable in various contexts, and that's how we come up with in the, the physical material world that we live in. And certain things do work the way we define them to work. But even in those fields, th that kind of conceptual knowledge is never the whole story. But especially in more of the general, you know, my feeling about me and my, my thoughts about the world and what it's like and what people are like, all these kinds of, you know, what we think is our knowledge of me and the world around me, that's not knowledge at all in the sense of truth. It's just a, a perspective, uh, a point of view that we've constructed through our conditioning and our programming since our babyhood, you know, and growing up in a particular family context. And then, of course, going through school, not just the things we were taught out of the curriculum 
in school, but things that we concluded about ourselves and about life just by the nature of the experience of schooling. We, we drew all sorts of conclusions about who I am, what I'm like, am I good, am I bad, am I, am I adequate, am I successful, am I a failure? A million thoughts and, and conclusions we draw about ourselves and the world, which we assume to be true. And yet they're not truth at all. <laughs> and so uh, it's, as you say, that we can come to see that what the mind is presenting, and it presents it without us even going to look for it. People, most people will recognise that my mind just runs, you know, all the time in my waking hours. It's just, I don't know, the thoughts are just coming, 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 coming. Um, and that kind of automatic flow of the, of the conceptual mind we think is who we are. And I think we think that's our life and we think it's truth. It's not at all. It's not who we are because we've just seen that we're actually the awareness that notices thoughts as they pop up, they pop up, they pop up, they pop up. We're the observer, actually. If we can just notice that, that the thoughts are running and notice from time to time, question them, as I just described a few minutes ago, we can start to, to notice our thoughts and question whether we know for certain that they're true or not. And we start to notice not only that we can't show that they're true, but also we increasingly realise I'm the awareness that's noticing. I can look at my thoughts. I'm not the thoughts. And this is a huge liberation. This is a huge step of a, of a kind of the spiritual awakening, the awakening of the essence of who you are as the peace-filled observing awareness because you can notice your thoughts. And the ones that are particularly troubling, you can look at them and notice there's no way you can know that they're true. But even in just in general, you begin to realise that you're not your thoughts that are flowing all the time. You're the observer of them. Another thing that your listeners can do, Ed, to uh, experience that little kind of separation between your, the awareness that you are and the thoughts that pop up is to just stop for a second and ask themselves this simple question. I wonder what the next thought to pop up in my mind will be. <laughs> And then we don't like silence in, in interviews, I know. <laughs> but I just pause <laughs> long enough hopefully, to, give, to give people a, a chance or they can try it after the interview to just stop and ask themselves, I wonder what the next thought to pop up in my mind will be. And, and some very unexpected thought many times will just pop into the mind. And often this helps people to really notice, wow, I could feel that space. There was me looking, watching, <laughs> and then this thought popped up. And they get this real tangible kind of a sense that, yeah, actually, yeah, I can see. Uh, I'm not the thoughts. I'm here noticing them. Then, of course, yes, we are. Just because of that habit, <laughs> habit of living, we're going to get caught up in them again and again. But as people read through my book, I give them lots of experiences as they read the book. I encourage them to read the book over and over. And they will increasingly, increasingly, increasingly find this sense of peaceful presence of who they are that's more and more noticeably there, this contentedness that's there, noticing their life unfold, noticing the thoughts that come up, noticing the intuitions that come up, following those, taking action in the world, being in relationship, but all with an increasingly 
peaceful background sense, a grounded sense that I'm here, unflapped, unflappable, the observer of my, um, my life's unfolding. A lot of people, in, in your book, you write on page 77, millions of people in both the East and the West have spent a lifetime immersing themselves in elaborate spiritual techniques, rituals, and culture. That comes out of ancient traditions in the belief that these things will bring them peace. How many of these people have experienced spiritual peace? You know, that's interesting right there because we see a lot of people going on this journey to ancient cultures to try to reinvent the will with spirituality. And I really wonder myself how many of these people have experienced the spiritual peace that they are seeking and how lost they can get going on these spiritual journeys because of that mist of the mind stuff. How many of these people have actually experienced the spiritual peace? <laughs> well, the kind of quietly implied uh, answer to the rhetorical question that you've just quoted is that <laughs> very, very few, <laughs> very, very few people um, who've engaged in all those elaborate pro uh, um, processes, rituals, um, you know, uh, conceptual frameworks, lifestyle you know, practices, very few of them have experienced spiritual peace or spiritual awakening. Um, and the few that have, you could say it's, it, it, it's, it must be then more attributable to coincidence or other things that they're doing, not to all these uh, elaborate um, practices. Um, and right. that, that uh, statement that you've quoted, Ed, comes from a chapter where I describe some of the more common traps that people get caught up in on the road of <clears throat> spiritual awakening. I'm cautious about even using a word like on the road <laughs> of spiritual awakening, as I, as I explain in the book, the notion even of being on a, on a, a spiritual journey or a spiritual path is a bit, is, can be very misleading because, and this comes back also to the essence of why and, and feeling that you need to um, engage in all sorts of elaborate trappings and culture and, and rituals around spiritual development. It's a com not only a complete myth, it's a trap because who you truly are, this spiritual self that many people want to wake up to, it's who you are now. <laughs> it's there already. Um, Ed, you'll remember that early in the book, I give some examples uh, of uh, awakened consciousness you know, from different people, how they've described their own spiritual um, consciousness. Um, or waking up experience. Um, and out of that, I, I draw one perhaps surprising conclusion for people, and that is that it, it's perfectly natural thing for us to experience. This awareness self that we are uh, beyond the mind and the body, it's there already. It's who, it's, 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 it's who we are already. There's nothing to develop. 
There's nothing to cultivate. There's nothing to, oh, another one. Uh, there's nothing to earn. There's no merit points you need to get in order to wake up. You know, it's not something you need to find a way to, how can I possibly, you know, deserve this? You don't need to deserve it. it it's you. It's who you are. And uh, the reason that that quote that you just um, made now, the statement you quoted, Ed, is in the chapter about traps, is that the conceptual mind loves to have this idea that there's lots and lots of things that I need to do and to think about and to practice, to develop in order to wake up spiritually. The conceptual mind loves that because it gives it stuff to, to chew on and to chew on and to chew on endlessly. And why does the conceptual mind like that? Because the conceptual mind has a vested interest in you not waking up to your true nature as awareness beyond the mind. The conceptual mind, maybe we can say even your idea of who you are, your, your self-concept or your self-image, who you've so long thought is who you are, doesn't want to dissolve, doesn't want to be shown to be just a figment of the imagination. And so it tries to hang on by telling you things like this thing about spiritual awakening, it's very, very complicated. It's going to take you many, many lives. In fact, it might take you many, many lifetimes and you've got to do all these elaborate things and you've got to spend X amount of time every day or X amount of time once a week or, you know, all sorts of tricks the mind will play and stories the mind will play. And I might say you, you in that quote, Ed, you pointed out many millions of people are caught up in, in believing this and playing this out in their lives. They're playing out this, this belief that all sorts of elaborate things are necessary to do to wake up spiritually. Not only are they not necessary to do, but they stand in the way of you waking up spiritually because who you are spiritually is, is already fully there, fully developed. It's, <laughs> it's, it's who you are. And the path to doing to experiencing that or waking up to the reality of who you are is simply to question what you've previously thought is who you are, which can't ever be shown to be who you are or shown to be true. In other words, what we identify with, have mistakenly identified with as who we are, when we notice that that's not real, then what we're left with is what is real. <laughs> the essence of who we are, this formless awareness that's up until now been in the background. Yeah, that's enlightening there. You know, one of those traps that a lot of people nowadays, especially, I've I've seen an increase in this uh, spiritual seeking in drug abuse. These, what are they, DMTs and uh, mushrooms, all of these things, which actually... I think they're seeking something more than a spiritual awakening with it. And that's my own feeling. I'm not against those people that want to journey down that path. I say, be very careful with what you do. I say, whenever we induce our mind with something beyond what we are, 
were subject to uh, it. So yeah. yes, you know that that's a trap that a lot of young people are in right now. And you know, I did it when I was young. I don't agree with it now. I don't judge people, but however what I see with those type of spiritual journeys, those spiritual awakenings bring on a lot of turmoils and troubles. What are your thoughts about these enhanced awakening spiritual journeys? Yeah, well, there's two aspects to what you've just been describing that I'd like to comment on. Um, So the first is that uh, if you have... what some people would describe as a spiritual experience as a result of taking this drug or that drug, um, I would point out that having any kind of perceptual experience, whether it's an extrasensory perception, uh, you know, a hallucinatory uh, kind of perception or an ordinary sensory perception, well, the ordinary ones, of course, we would we would say, you know, they're not spiritual perceptions. But many people make the mistake of thinking, if I can take a drug and have some extra sensory perception experience, um, then that's going to be help my spiritual awakening. That's a mistake, because even uh, a perception beyond our normal five senses is a perception of something. Who's experiencing the perception? Who's the perceiver? Ah, I, the real me, the observing awareness, is perceiving this whatever I'm experiencing because I've just taken this this drug or that drug, this mushroom or that mushroom. So it still doesn't give you the awakening of the essence of who you are because you are still the uh, unidentified observer of what you're perceiving as a result of taking that drug. The perception is not spirituality. You, the perceiver, are the spiritual essence of you and all all life. So these drugs are a trick. They're a trap. Uh, those They may be fascinating, some of those experiences that people have in those ways, but I would agree with you, Ed. Certainly, Abe, <laughs> that there's no judgment involved in anybody who's who's exploring them. But B, I would just encourage people to to consider whether they are truly going to give them what they really want, which is the essence of who they are. And those experiences cannot, because who you truly are is the observer of what you perceive, not some fascinating thing that you perceive. Um, Now, the other aspect, Ed, that I'd like to comment on about your question, you know, about people going to drugs in the first place, You'll remember, Ed, that there's a section in the book, Chapter 3, where I talk about different ways that people can, they try to avoid the thoughts that are troubling them. So I'd like to just briefly touch on those. Uh, I don't want people, to, the listeners, to feel like these are adequate explanations of these, but I do want to touch on them because it's so helpful, I think, potentially to many of your listeners. When we feel unhappy with life in any way at all, we tend to try to distract ourselves from our thoughts. Then we feel better for, for a while we're, while we're distracted. 
So I describe in the book three very common ways that people try to distract themselves from their thoughts. Three ways <laughs> that don't ultimately work. One is that we try to distract ourselves with a diversion. So this would include, you know, uh, hobbies or shopping or surfing the web or taking drugs, all sorts of things. Um, compulsive sexual activities, people get caught up in all of that as a way of escaping, having to be there with their thoughts. Those things don't work because, I should say, momentarily they work because they do distract us from our thoughts, but inevitably, sooner or later, our thoughts rush in again when that activity is finished. So these things don't work ultimately as way as solutions to the problem of our troubling thoughts. The second thing that people try to deal with their thoughts is they try to stop them or suppress the thoughts that pop up that, that make them feel uncomfortable or unhappy. But you can't push away a thought. The more the more hard you try to push away a thought, <laughs> the more persistent it is in popping up. <laughs> and you'll remember, Ed, I give you a little um, example in the book. Based on uh, some studies that have been done about this suppressing thoughts to show that the more you try to suppress them, the more likely they are to, they are to arise. So your listeners could try this after that they listen to the interview. And that is that if they give themselves 10 seconds to try to not think about something in particular. In, in the book, I use the example of a yellow car. Try now for 10 seconds to not think about a yellow car. So then they count off the 10 seconds <coughs> trying to do think about anything else but a yellow car, but they can't. <laughs> the thought about yellow car pops up, pops up, pops up. So it doesn't work. <laughs> and the third thing that people try, this will be very surprising to many of you listeners, people try to deal with troubling thoughts by focusing only on the positive thoughts, the good thoughts. It sounds logical enough. And uh, momentarily, certainly it feels better to think a, a happy thought or a good thought than a bad thought or an unhappy thought. But ultimately, it doesn't work because good only exists in relation to bad in the conceptual mind. So if your conceptual mind, your, your uh, resolve is to, I'm only going to think good thoughts, you'll be fearing all the time that you're doing that, any thought that might be popping up that your mind would label bad. And if you think about, I've got certain good things in my life, I'm going to focus on those. That's a that's problematic, nevertheless, because you're still there. If you're emphasizing these three things I really love about my life, then you're going to fear anything that might pop up or any person or situation that might threaten to take away or reduce those things in your life that you think are so good. <laughs> so good doesn't exist in the conceptual mind without bad being lurking in the background or sometimes <laughs> attacking you at the same time. Those three methods don't work. And as we've already touched on, the thing that does work Perhaps the surprising thing, instead of trying to run away from the thoughts that trouble us, if we look at them and go through the processes I describe in the book, simple ways of noticing that there's no way that we can know for certain that that thought is true. That is the solution that works. That dis results in our disidentifying from our thoughts, realizing that they're not true and they're not who I am, and what's left is the awareness that we truly are, the formless presence that we truly are, wakes up out of questioning the thoughts that we mistakenly believed to be true and to be us. Very interesting. Our time's running short, Andrew. I have another 
thing I want to touch on with you here on page 80 and 81, it states hundreds of millions of people are right now caught in the unworthy me trap, buying the conditioned mind story that they are the undeserving wretch. You don't need a minder, go between, or redeemer. You are the self. A lot of people can and will find that kind of confrontational. Explain yourself with that one a little bit. You quoted a statement earlier from the book, Ed, that said, everything bad that you have ever believed about yourself is false. It was just the judging play of the conditioned mind, just a figment of imagination. All these stories that we've been telling ourselves and and some that we've been buying into that we've been told by other people since early childhood about good and bad or about uh, uh, opinions about us, judgments about aspects of us, they are simply conceptual mind. Uh, playing its playing its games. They're not truth. They're just imagination, just re- reflections of the conditioned patterns of our of our own our own conditioned patterns or the conditioned patterns of the people around us, who've who've imposed these uh, judgments of good or bad on us. So we grow up a, a very big part of people's self image is to do with these these thoughts about good and bad. But they aren't reality. The essence of you is beyond judgments of good and bad. It's beyond the conceptual mind. And the conceptual mind can and does spend the whole of our lifetimes for most people playing this game of debating and running and chasing and running and chasing and and feeling proud and then feeling you know guilty or ashamed or you know it plays these conceptual opposite games and that's the nightmare of life when we're identified with the conditioned mind because the conditioned mind is a realm of conceptual opposites so we all do what we can <laughs> to to have the 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 good thoughts about ourselves be the dominant ones <laughs> and the success with which we manage to do that varies very much from person to person. But even the people who think well of themselves most of the time still have lurking in the background the thoughts that maybe they're not that good after all. And some people have almost all, all the time this dominant feeling of, of shame or unworthiness, of not being good enough, of not being all that they should be, or just plain being bad. And these have utterly nothing to do with reality. They're simply thoughts. They're simply conditioned thoughts. Uh, And one way to see, even in this moment, uh, quickly, I know we're short of time, one way that we can see this is that if you think of yourself as, um, I'm a bad person, it's just as, as simple as this as to ask yourself, was there ever a time when you thought you were a good person? Oh, well, yeah, there were sometimes. Has anyone else ever said, oh, good on you for doing that. Thanks for that. Uh, well, yes, other people have said, oh, I was good for doing this or that. So if if bad is who you are, 
how does that work if, if people have said you're good or if you yourself have said sometimes you're good? <laughs> but it's just complete yeah. nonsense. Um, and so we don't need to have anybody step in on our behalf to say, even though you're a bad person, uh, I'm going to lift the burden of that badness from you so that even though you don't deserve it, you can enjoy spiritual uh, spiritual peace and contentment in your life. This is false. It's utterly false. It's a it's a, just a game of the conditioned mind, other people's conditioned judging minds, our own conditioned judging minds. And often we buy into this because we feel there's all this, always this lurking judgment that I'm bad or I'm unworthy in some way. So when someone tells us, even though you're bad and unworthy, I'm going to help you. Um, if you do this, you believe this, um, I'll, I'll, even though you're bad, I'll kind of, as it were, overlook it and I'll give you the gift of peace that you really want. That's, that's a false story. And most importantly, it's false for this reason, that your own feelings that you're good or bad are not anything to do with who you truly are. You are the big S self, as you just said in that quote, Ed. Already, you are the formless, beautiful, peace-filled essence of life. That's your very nature. And it's simple to realise your essential nature when you begin to question your thoughts and realise that they are not true and they're not who you are. And some other simple things around that that I describe in the book to make it a very coherent picture. Ed, that's been my, my aspiration in this book to pull into a, a very concise and methodical and experiential laying out for people that, wow, when I notice these things, do these things, I realise that bubbling up within me is this peaceful essence of, of who I am, just more aware, more awake, more present, and it feels lovely. And because, and why does it feel lovely? Because the illusion of our identity, identification with the judging conceptual mind has been seen to be a mistake. That identity with the judging mind is a mistake. It's There's no truth in the judging mind. It's just a, a, a trick that it plays. Well, that's a lot to think about, Andrew. And it's a wonderful book. When is it going to come out and how can people get a hold of this great book? Uh, well, it's out now, Ed, just a couple of days ago. Um, the 31st of July was the official release date by the publisher, John Hunt Publishing. It's on Amazon and many physical bookstores, many online bookstores. Online, of course, you can get it both as a paperback and as an ebook. Uh, and if people want to just uh, keep tabs on um, other things that I'm doing in terms of uh, workshops or talks or just check out more about the book, or about me, uh, they can they can do that on my website, which is awakeningmadesimple.org, awakeningmadesimple.org. That's wonderful. Great book by Andrew Seaton, people, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple. One thing I want you to take away from this interview is be open, be honest with yourself about your spirituality. 
I want to thank you, Andrew, for being on Dead America. And that is what Dead America is about. Feeling dead in America, you want to waken up spiritually. Thank you, Andrew. Have a good day. Thanks, Ed. Thanks to you. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.